Good morning, church. He is risen. All right, the right response is he is risen indeed. Let's try that again. You ready? He is risen. Oh, good. You guys did that very well. We'll test you again on that later today, I bet. So, we're so glad that you're here. Uh, Glad that you came out on a chilly Easter morning in the rain, and you all look great, and you're singing even better, so thank you for being here. Today is uh, a great day, but every day that God's given us is a great day. We believe that there is one God. We believe that there is the Holy Father, the Almighty, the Maker of heaven and earth. Amen, church? We believe in Jesus Christ, His only begotten Son, who suffered under Pontius Pilate. He was crucified for our sins. He was dead, and He was buried, and He rose from the dead. We believe in the Holy Spirit. We believe in the universal church and the forgiveness of sins and the communion of the saints, and we believe in the resurrection of the dead. This is maybe the most underestimated part of the Christian faith. Not that Jesus suffered for you, I think most people know that, but that Jesus rose for you. Not that Jesus was punished because we've done things that were wrong, I think most people have been told about the guilt and the shame and the condemnation, but that Jesus removed the guilt and the shame and the condemnation because he didn't stay dead, because his death isn't on your conscience forever, because he's not dead How can his death be on your conscience if he's alive? He lives for you today. He lives for you to clear your record, to clear your conscience, and to give you new hope. These are the things that we believe, and these are the things that we know. Would you bow with me for a moment for a word of prayer? Father, we know that you're present with us because you're always present. You're invisible, but you know all things. You know the very thoughts of our, of our minds. You know the intentions of our hearts. You know the actions that we have already done and those that we will do in the days in front of us. We don't even know how to respond to a God who has as much knowledge as you do. And sometimes, Father, in our fear, because of what we do not know, we forget how much you know about us. We forget that you knew the very worst thing we would ever think and the worst thing we would ever do before you sent Jesus for us, and you still sent Jesus. We forget that you not only know it as knowledge, but you have felt it in your heart because Jesus suffered in the same way that we suffer, and he's been glorified in the way that we hope in the way that you've promised that we'll be glorified with him. All of our hope rests on him, Father. All of our trust and our faith rests on Jesus. To you, God, who are the king of the ages, ever living and never dying, always present, although unseen, be power and glory Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, now and forevermore. And all who agree say, Amen. What we know is a very important part of everything we choose to do and believe. And when we don't know something, we don't have the opportunity to act on it. When there's something, some information that's left out, we don't even have the opportunity to make a decision about it because we simply don't know. 
This comes into play in regular life all of the time. There's a story about a couple who had the opportunity to go out to a very nice banquet. And they had raised their children, and all the time they were raising their children, they didn't often get to go out and do anything nice. Amen, moms and dads? And this was a great opportunity. They went out and they bought a new tux for him, a brand new elegant gown for her. And they planned the whole evening out. The kids were at uh, you know, a friend's house, and uh, as they were walking out the door, one thing that they had forgotten to do, the wife turns to the husband and she says, oh, we forgot to take care of the cat. Could you, the limo is outside. Could you run upstairs real fast, find that cat, and let her outside so she doesn't tear up everything while we're gone? We're going to be gone all night. The husband says, sure, honey, no problem. Go out there, hold the limo. So she runs out to the limo, and she sits down in the back seat. She's sitting in all of this elegance, and she's not you know, really used to that, and she's in awe of it. And then she thinks, wait, wait a second. Uh, the, the limo driver, how are you doing? How are you doing? Good. You and your husband, good, good. And she thinks, wait a second, this limo driver, I don't know him. I don't want him to know that there's nobody at home in our nice house all night long. Maybe he's friends with some hoodlums or something. He's going to come back here and rob our house. She is overcome with fear. Rational, irrational, who cares? In the moment, she decides to tell a little white lie. She thinks, I want the limo driver to think somebody's home. Well, my husband will be out in just a minute. He's gone upstairs to wake up my mother who's watching the house for us. Okay, no problem. Husband comes running back out of the house. He opens the door. He slides into the back seat. And before she can give him the signal, you know, the universal wife signal, shh, don't say anything. I've lied about something. He says, don't worry, honey. It's all fixed now. But boy, was that a pain. I couldn't find her. She was under the bed. Can you believe that old grumpy thing was under there taking a nap? I had to go find a broom from the closet and poke her till she'd come out. And then I threw her out the back door. Oh, how important it is to know the things that we do not know. And today we find one of the little told stories of the resurrection morning. In John 20, we encounter a surprise character. The first character who shows up isn't one of Jesus' 11 living apostles. In fact, it's not one of the most important men in the city of Jerusalem. It's not one of the religious leaders in the city. It is a woman who had dedicated her life once Jesus had healed her to following Jesus, to ministering to him, and to serving him as he served people. It's, her name is Mary. She was from uh, Magdala, so she's called Mary Magdalene. And this is her story of an Easter morning so very long ago. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and this other disciple, the one Jesus loved. And she said, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they have put him. And I want you to put yourself in the place of Mary for just a moment. I want you to think about this character who gets overlooked so often. Look at her words of distress. Do you see her pain? 
Do you feel her grief? Have you been in the place where you've lost a loved one? And your grief is already so great. And can you imagine the despair if your loved one had been brutally and unjustly murdered and then his body was desecrated by being stolen from his tomb? Can you imagine at this moment the overwhelming shadow over Mary from Magdala? Her love for Jesus was so deep, I mentioned he had healed her. The scriptures tell us specifically what he had done for her. It says that he had healed her from seven demons. Now, I've not even known one person to have one demon that I've tried to heal or pray with in my life of ministry. Oh, many sicknesses and many injustices, but nothing that I knew to be a demon. Can you imagine the seven demons? And maybe this number in Scripture sometimes stands for being a full or complete unit. So it might just mean that she was completely full of this demonic power. And she was imprisoned by it. She was in spiritual chains. You know, she couldn't live the freedom of life that she wanted. She was under control of this darkness. And maybe for you, you haven't experienced demon possession, but you've experienced the control from the darkness in your life. Something that someone did to you that in the past that caused you hurt, that caused you pain. And even though years have passed, this thing still comes up again and it puts you in bondage. Next week, we're going to talk a little bit about how Jesus' love that is so much greater than everything else is greater than our pain and our hurt. And maybe for you, it's the frustrations of the moment. It's your life setting. It's the thing going on right now with your spouse, with your work, with your children, with your grandchildren. In two weeks, we're going to talk about Jesus' love being greater than our irritations and our frustrations. And maybe it's your fears and anxieties that hold you captive. Three weeks from now, we'll talk about that in this series called Greater Love. But today, let's look at Mary. So full of love for Jesus. Her ministry, I mentioned that she had come along with Jesus and ministered to him. She, along with some other women, were known for being the ones that provided for Jesus' ministry. This probably means that they had some kind of wealth or some kind of income, and out of their estate, they were paying for food and maybe lodging. They were helping provide money for the good deeds that were being done as Jesus was selflessly working all day long to heal people and to love them and to share with them the good news that the kingdom of God had come near and calling people to repentance Mary and the other women along with her are working selflessly all day long to make sure that there's refreshment for Jesus, that he has a place to stay, and that his needs are looked after while he goes and does this ministry. She is deeply involved in his life. And they have a commitment and a bond that runs deeper than mere friendship. It's such a good relationship, and she has so much love that people who misunderstand the scriptural story at times in history, have accused her of being Jesus' lover. Now, there is no evidence for this. Instead, many people throughout the history of the world have been incapable of understanding the great depth of relationship, the uncanny and uncommon love of a woman that Jesus could have because of what he knows about her. And because he's able to look at her through pure eyes 
And because they have a mutual ministry in which he does his part and she does hers. And so her, her love is so deep that understand in this moment her despair is so deep. Now only about 60 hours before this moment of Mary's pain, Jesus had made this statement to his followers. This, she comes on Sunday morning. Jesus said this on Thursday night. Jesus told his followers, there is no greater love than to lay down one's life for one's friends. Jesus, on Thursday night, knowing that he was going to the cross, is trying to teach the followers what he is about to do. He's trying to let them in so they know what is going on. But as we read in the various gospel accounts, even when they come running and they look in the tomb, and even here in John 20, Peter and John come running and they look in the tomb and at first they do not understand because they simply couldn't grasp what Jesus meant by this. And throughout history, people have had so much trouble understanding what Jesus meant by this. This has been used as leverage for all kinds of things. At World War I, this was a great piece of propaganda that was used in order to kind of urge or manipulate young men into going into the war. Other nations at other times have used this to persuade people to do all kinds of things, to sacrifice themselves. But Jesus said, there is no greater love than to lay down one's life for one's friends. And Jesus alone had the power to do something after he laid down his life for his friends. Look at how Paul picks up on this in Romans 5. Paul wrote, very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person. Very rarely will somebody lay down their life, right? Willingly die for a righteous person. Though for a good person, someone might dare to die. I think what Paul means is this. There are some people out there who we see as merely being righteous. And we know, as Christians, we know that the word righteous is a good word. Maybe you even think these two words here are synonyms, righteous and good. So like, what is he saying? Why would you not die for the righteous one, but die for the good one? And I think Paul's using a little bit of sarcasm here. Paul's known for doing this in his letters. There are some people who, they're merely righteous. You can look at them and they think they're righteous. Their whole life looks righteous. You know, we might call them holier than thou's. They're people who really know that they know God. And everybody else needs to know that they know God. And that's all that you know about them. And Paul seems to be saying that for somebody who has righteousness on display, very rarely would anybody die for them. It's just simply not compelling to die for a self-righteous, holier-than-thou person. But for a good person, somebody might even dare to die. So somebody who is known to be good and loving and kind, somebody who's more than merely righteous, somebody who's a friend, you might dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. We weren't righteous, we weren't even good. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Amen, church? Again, Jesus said this when he was describing laying down his life. He said, the reason my father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This command I received from my Father. You see, Jesus says that unlike the person who may run into the burning building, save their loved one, 
die in the attempt, and be gone. Jesus has a unique ability that he can lay his life down and he has authority to take it back up again. Paul, continuing in his passage, says this about Jesus. This is why it means so much to us. If while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Think about this for a moment. Look at the words. Let it settle in on your heart. In the show, This Is Us, there's a terrible episode where the house catches on fire. I think this was the episode they played after the Super Bowl. Jack Pearson, the father of the family, wakes up and sees the hallway is an inferno. He does some brave things. He grabs a mattress. He runs into the one child's room. He uses the mattress as a shield to keep the heat and the smoke at bay. He gets the family outside and he runs back inside to grab the dog and a few family possessions. No doubt, Jack is a hero. He puts his life on the line for those he loves. For a few minutes, it seems like everything is well. Until at the hospital, Jack expires from the smoke inhalation that he had taken in while he ran into the fire. He laid down his life. We can be sure that he saved his family because they all come out alive, but they're in grief, they're in mourning. They've lost something that's desperately close to them. They are Mary Magdalene at the moment on Sunday morning when she says, we don't know where they've taken him. And they don't understand. And Paul in Romans 5 says, do you understand how much greater the rescue is when the rescuer comes out alive as well? Because then you have absolute certainty in the salvation. The rescuer who loves you, who would lay his life down for you, if he comes out of this thing unscathed, then you know he did his work. You know he saved everyone he meant to save because he would not give up until they were all safe. And so if Jesus today is alive again, that means he was successful in saving those of you who believe in him. Amen, church? You don't have to fear. You're not still in the burning house. He wouldn't have come out if you were. And he laid down his life. And he had the power to take it up again. And he lives today. And you can have hope in your salvation. The people of God knew a lot about bondage. The history of the Jews was one of slavery and depression, sometimes of exile into foreign nations where they were taken as captives. And very early in the history of Israel, there was a famine in the land where Jacob, whose name was changed to Israel, and all of his family lived. One of his sons, Joseph, was already a captive in Egypt who had been raised, miraculously, hope against hope, to second in command of all of Egypt. And so here's Joseph, one son in Egypt, and here's the family starving in a famine in the land of Canaan. And the family all ends up coming down to Egypt because they need food. And they live there, and for a while, they are under the good graces of the king of Egypt. But as things always do in history... Times change and people change and rulers change. And there came to be a king in Egypt who didn't remember Jacob and didn't remember the promises that had been made to him. 
and who saw the Israelites that were growing in number as an opportunity, an economic tool, spendable like income, even though they were people, and he enslaves them to hard labor. The people of God are in a desperate place, and it feels like God has forgotten them. And so in Exodus 2, verse 23, we read about their response. In the day, uh, during those many days, the king of Egypt died and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and they cried out for help. You see, they also were Mary Magdalene. They also were the Pearson children. They're in bondage. They're in pain. They're suffering. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and then these words, and God knew. Can you feel their distress? As a parent, could you imagine the distress of seeing your children in chains? Can you imagine the despair of seeing your elderly parents slaving away to make bricks for this overlord? Can you imagine the hopelessness? And then when they cry out to God, the text says that God heard, that God saw, that God knew. In the next chapter, God comes to Moses. He finds Moses, the future savior of Israel, out in the desert working with sheep. He comes to him through this burning bush that won't burn up. And after these miraculous things, the Lord says to Moses, I've seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt. I've heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. You see, he echoes, he echoes the words that we just saw. I've heard it. I've seen it. I know it. But the question for the Israelites would be, but how do we know that you know? Maybe some of you men have been caught in a circumstance that I've been caught in before when you were interacting with a lady, maybe your wife, maybe another woman. Women, I think you know how this goes too. And let's be honest, I think you have fun with this. There's a moment at which every man realizes that she knows, that I think that I know what she's going through. There's a moment at which I overstep my boundaries. I give advice instead of listen. I say, oh, I know how you're feeling. And there's the moment when you see in her eye, she, oh, she knows now that I think I know what she's going through. Dangerous, isn't it? Chains, isn't it? Bondage, isn't it? It's a moment when you realize, I'm trapped. Oh, no. Because she knows that you know, that you think you know what she knows. And then she'll say something to you like this. You don't know. Don't pretend that you know, right? And you realize you've overstepped your bounds. And the great question in these stressful situations is, not just what do you know here with your head, but what do you know here with your heart? Your wife doesn't want you to simply know with your head how to fix it. She wants you to feel with your heart what she's feeling. She wants you to know the distress of the moment, the despair, the hopelessness, the angst, the fear, the hurt, whatever it might be. She wants you to feel and to know, not to just see and to know. And this is the same position the Israelites are in. 
How do we know that God knows what we're experiencing? He says he sees it. He says he hears it. He says he knows, but how can we trust him? He's not a human. He's God. How can God know the Israelites' pain? How can he know Mary's pain? And in verse 8, God says, And I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land. And in this great deliverance from the exile in Egypt, from the enslavement in Egypt, God reveals himself in a more personal way than he's ever revealed himself before. He bears his heart. This is the moment when the husband, when the man in the relationship realizes it's not simply enough for me to use words. I've got to express a little bit of emotion. I have to get my heart involved. And so God does wonderful things in the Exodus. He tells the people his personal name. Never did that before. Didn't tell Abraham, his friend, his personal name. But he tells it to Moses. He didn't lead Abraham, his personal friend, day and night, 24-7, by a pillar of cloud and fire. But he leads the Israelites out of Egypt with a personal touch because they need to know that he knows what they know. And they need to feel it in their heart. And he says, I'll come down now. We know that Jesus did this too. Look at what the Hebrews author says about him. Since we people, the children, have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity. So that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death. That is the devil. And free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. Do you hear it, church? Jesus doesn't tell you that he knows how you feel. He experiences with you how you feel. Jesus doesn't say, I know how to fix it. He says, I will live it with you. I will sit with you in it. Our fear and our slavery, all of the history of humanity has been this this overriding equalizer that befalls everyone, rich and poor, uh, wise and foolish, and it's death. And there's a point in every life where we fear it for ourselves or a loved one. The Hebrews author continues. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. Do you see that Jesus experienced the fear that you feel? He doesn't tell you that he knows it. He lived it. He, t- he had tears over the fear of death. And some people want to take all the passion out of Jesus and say that in the garden he didn't feel any fear. That's just, I mean, it's fake and false and it's not the gospel. Jesus experienced as a human person what you experienced and he experienced the fear of death. It gripped him. But he had great faith. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. Son though he was, he learned obedience from what he suffered. And once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. Do you see how Jesus participates in the desperate prayers? In the moment of distress, the earliest song that we know of from the Christian church goes like this. And your relationships with one another have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the nature of a servant and being made in human likeness. You see, he came down. 
And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. And therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that's above every other name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, both in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen, church. And so we find Mary. We find Mary on that Easter morning, on that Sunday morning, on that resurrection morning. The victory is already secured. But she doesn't know it. And Mary stood outside the tomb crying. The tears that Jesus had wept on Thursday night in the garden, Mary weeps on Sunday morning at the tomb. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and she saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body has been, one at the head and the other at the foot, and they asked her, Woman, why are you crying? If I was Mary, I would have blown up on those guys right then. What are you talking about? I mean, what are you to your angels? You know why I'm crying. They murdered God. They stole his body. I don't know where to find him. My life is over. I've committed everything to him. They asked her, Woman, why are you crying? And she says, They've taken my Lord away, and I don't know where they've put him. And at this, she turned around, and she saw Jesus. But look at what happens in the moment. She saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. You see, in this moment, she simply isn't capable of knowing and understanding what he's done. It's one thing to hear him say with your mind, I'll lay down my life and have the power to take it up again. It's one thing to hear him say, destroy this temple, and in three days, I'll raise it up again. It's a different thing to feel it in the heart. It's another thing to believe it from the heart. If you watched your closest friend betrayed and murdered brutally and you had seen his body lifeless and cold, if you were Joseph of Arimathea who went to the cross and took the body of Jesus down, lifeless and cold, wrapped it in a linen shroud, laid it in the tomb, if you were Mary from Magdala who had come to that tomb at the end of Friday, right before the Sabbath begun, to look at it and to prepare spices and ointments that you were going to use to anoint the body of Jesus on Sunday morning, and you had seen the body lifeless and cold, and the flesh nearly ripped from his bones, and pale because of the blood loss, and you'd seen the marks on his body, you wouldn't see Jesus when you turned around either. You'd see anything, an apparition, a tree, a ghost, a gardener. And Mary turns and she sees Jesus and doesn't know that it's him. He asked her, woman, why are you crying? What is it you're looking for? And I want you to see her courage and fear. Thinking he was the gardener, she said, sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've put him and I will get him. This little Jewish woman, probably not large of frame, bravely announces, if you just tell me where the body's at, I'll go sling him over my shoulder, blood and crusted on his body and all, and I'll carry him away from here. So great is her love for him. And Jesus in this moment sees her fully for who she is, and he knew, he knew. And Jesus said one word, Mary. With that word, he opened up her heart. 
With that word, he reminded her, I know. With that word, she saw him. Her faith came to light. With that word, she realized that the tears she had wept that morning would be the last tears she'd ever weep over Jesus for the rest of her life. At that moment, she knew that the things she had experienced and the pain that she had felt, he had borne at the cross. And even at that moment on Sunday morning, his heart was bursting with compassion, not for himself and what he'd gone through, but for her and what she'd endured. And he says one word to her, and it's her name, Mary. And Jesus was famous for telling people things about themselves that they didn't even know Jesus meets Nathaniel and he tells him things about himself that he couldn't have possibly known. He meets the woman of Samaria. He tells her everything she had ever done. Jesus was known for knowing people through and through to the core. But in this moment, he proves, I don't just know what you've done. I know your heart. And I believe in you, Mary. And faith comes to light in her heart. She turns to him and she cries out one simple word to mirror the name he calls her, Rabbani, which means teacher, I see you. And this is the great hope of Easter morning. Not only that Jesus suffered for us, but that he knows your heart. Not only that he bled for you, but that he lives for you. Not that he laid down his life for you only, but that he raised it up again for you. Not only that he suffered for you, but that he cares for you that he experienced what you feel, that your chains and your bondage that you think that no one else knows are known by the creator of the universe. And on these things we hope, we believe, and these things we know. Amen, church? Amen. Let's stand together for a moment. We'll sing a couple final songs. If you'd like to respond for prayers today, we'll have some of our leadership in front and in the back to pray with you. If you'd like to put on Christ and baptism today, and be buried with him and raised to life with him, securing your hope in his resurrection and awaiting your own. We'll baptize you this morning. Whatever we can do for you, please share with us as we sing these two songs.